Our process is basically anything that runs on your computer is open source. Anything that runs on our computer may not be. It's always an interesting conversation. A lot of our open source projects, they're not necessarily useful without a service backend to them. Once in a while, we'll get a pull request and we're like, you know, this is an amazing idea. I like generally what you've been doing here, but we're going to need to change this. The person still gets credit in the change log. They still get recognized. Open source like just basically helps us achieve our business objectives, and we think it's sort of the right thing to do for some things. Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm David, and you're listening to Don't Make Me Code, the bi-weekly series where we discuss developer experience and some of the unique challenges we face building developer-facing products. Don't Make Me Code is brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And if you're interested in being a guest on this show or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. Welcome back to Don't Make Me Code. Back with me is David, and with us today is Elon Rabinovich, the Director of Technical Services and Evangelism at Datadog. And we're going to talk about open source software again, and particularly how people are building companies on open source and the different ways that they're doing it. And we're calling this episode Standing on the Shoulders of a License. So we always kick things off with a little bit of background. So Elon, why don't you tell us a bit about your work at Datadog and sure. how you got into this? Yeah, so as Steve mentioned, I lead the community and evangelism team at, at Datadog. We work with our open source community as they're trying to build integrations or help improve our projects, You know, help to grow and foster that community. And we also get to collect stories from our customers and just tell them, help them meet with each other, help them feel like they're part of a bigger, a bigger thing than just them and their monitoring tool. The way I ended up at Datadog was actually I was a customer for a number of years at one of our one of our larger customers at the time, and uh, you know when my time there came to an end, I was looking for a new opportunity, and, and this came up at Datadog. This is my first official job as a community director manager type. Prior to this, uh, mostly this was a hobby, so I ran a bunch of open source and technical conferences and participated as a contributor in the open source community, but not necessarily. Never really had the title of community guy. So this is a little new to me, but a lot of the experiences from my past as an individual contributor have been interesting to apply here. Yeah, I saw that you had been involved with the Linux community for a while. Yeah, so this started out of the out of the sort of user group community in LA, but a bunch of friends and I got together and started a conference in the Southern California area called Scale. It stands for SoCal Linux Expo, although we we call it Scale these days because honestly, there is a small subset of the content that's about Linux proper, and then a ton of content about everything open source, whether it's hardware or software or free culture or other things like that. And so, it started off there, and other friends in other cities are like, "Well, hey, you've done this before. Can you help me do this in Austin or some other city?" And so now there's there's a nonprofit LinuxFest.org, and we're involved in about half a dozen to a dozen, depending on the year. Technical conferences that we help organize, or uh, at least do the fiscal sponsorship for. So, you know, the contracts and accounting and all the all the sort of boring work, so that the local team can just work on building a great conference. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation now was because of this really big and interesting launch that just happened with Datadog. So, Stripe has a team that's contributed several person months of work to a new open source library called Veneur. Now, Datadog is not a purely open source product. There are open source pieces of it, and it was. Surprising to me that one, you know, paying customers would contribute so much time and energy to something like that on the back of what ostensibly is a SaaS product. And you know, the two of you were having an interesting conversation about this before. So um, I wonder first if maybe Elon, you could tell us a little bit about that project and, and what it means for Datadog and Stripe. Sure. So Datadog, for those that, that aren't familiar, is a hosted monitoring solution. So we take time series metrics and events. We t- help you graph them, alert on them. 
store them so you can observe your environment, your applications, know how you're doing as a business. One of our customers is is Stripe, you know, a large credit card processing company here in the Bay Area. You know, their observability team happens to use us. And they they wanted to do some of their metric aggregation in a slightly different way than our projects, than our collectors do. Our process is basically anything that runs on your computer is open source, anything that runs on our computer may or may not be. It's a fairly standard SaaS model. And so you run an agent on your systems, it collects metrics and sends it to us. Um, you know, the folks at Stripe wanted to do some of the metric and some of the metric accounting in a slightly different way than we did. And so they built this project called Vineyard. You know, their observability team spent, as you said, a few definitely person weeks, possibly person months on, on building this project and then released it as open source. You know, there's been a lot of interest around it from our community. So as, as you mentioned, it's always an interesting conversation. A lot of our open source projects, you know, they are open source. They're released generally under either the Apache or the BSD license. But you know, they're not necessarily useful without a service backend to them. And you know, in our case being Datadog. And so that makes I think that does raise some interesting questions around where you're contributing to a you're contributing towards a service that you're already paying for in some way or another. Turns out we have a very passionate community. You know, we get pull requests all the time on new plugins, new large projects like Veneer, even on our documentation. You know, that's an open source project in and of itself, and we get we get pull requests, <laughs> you know, fairly regularly. Of you know, I learned how to do something new that's not covered here, or you know, I found a typo. Let me fix it for you. So we're kind of here to talk about developer experience. Yeah. Uh, I'd be curious to know about sort of like the origin of open source at Datadog, like. Has the collector or whatever open source pieces you have always been that way? Was there some sort of decision behind that process? Like, um, so I, you know, again, I'm I'm relatively new at, at Datadog, having been there for about two years. Datadog's been around for six, so huh. um, so you know, I can tell you I can tell you the stories as I as I've heard them and know them. But I was you know, open source predates me at, at Datadog. What I'll say is, as far as I know, all of our agents and SDKs have always been open source. Some of them started off as other companies' projects that we, you know, contributed to and eventually forked. Some of those folks have, you know, in turn reforked it back. Uh, you know, our our agents have also been forked by other folks and used elsewhere. And I'm sure we'll touch on the benefits and pains of of, of that whole forking situation at some point during the show today. <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's just sort of open source at this point is if you want a developer community contributing to your projects, if you want them to be engaged, you have to have that source available. Otherwise, uh, or or some sort of a plugin model, some set of APIs. It, you know, it, you have to be extensible. Otherwise, you know, folks are not. They don't have an opportunity to contribute anything. I think these days it's very rare for me to run into libraries or SDKs that aren't in some way liberally licensed, or you know, in, whether it be open source or something close to an open source license. It's much easier to know how to self-support when you know how something works. If you you know you want to be able to fix a bug when you find it, you want to be able to add features or change something when when it's lacking for you in the product. I think just people have changed the way they want to consume software, even if they don't necessarily want to rewrite that, you know, this very large database project from scratch or some metric store from scratch. They at least want to be able to see how it works and better understand it so they can reason on it. Yeah, and that to me is an interesting point that as developer tools exposing the product and even making the product available in this way, as here's this processing and visualization engine that we call Datadog, but it's available to you to contribute your own projects to, to customize the way you want. And that you wouldn't see that with consumer products, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's an interesting way of building a product from the ground up to encourage contributions. And it sounds like it's something you're doing with Convox as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely. So, it's the question for me is always really interesting. I think if you're building a tool for developers, like some part of it is going to have to be open source. Like you said, it may be as simple as like a plugin architecture. It's at least going to be an API. There's got to be some way for people to to fiddle with it and and customize it. 
And so, so yeah, I mean, the most interesting question to me right now is sort of where do you draw that line and how much of it is open source and how much of it, you know, are you building something that's like actually like totally useful on its own or is it like, you know, is it a satellite thing to your product or, you know, then are you giving too much away for free when you do that or not? And like, what do you charge for and not? And yeah. it's, it's a lot of interesting uh, and I think, questions. And I think that answer is going to be different for every, you know, for every business. For us, again, it's anything sort of behind behind the APIs that we expose. We consider that our SaaS service. Anything that runs on your machine is is open source, and so it seems like a, a reasonable place to have the border or the interface. For me, I mean, it, at minimum, I mean, what I think one of the benefits people don't talk about a lot with open source is if you go buy a license to a commercial or proprietary—I don't want to say commercial, but a proprietary product or a proprietary license. Let's say you go to you know you go to Oracle and you want to include their library for interacting with their databases in your product. It's not released as open source, so you have this commercial agreement with them that you now have to take to your lawyers to figure out whether or not you know what's legal and what you're trying to do. How much do you have to pay them? How does this all work out? With open source licensing, we've effectively I know lawyers in some cases are afraid of them, but really we've made their lives easier. We've now we've now got a standard for how you interact with a company of you know whose software you're consuming. It's not these weird bespoke licenses for every new vendor. And so being able to bring something like the BSD or MIT or Apache license in and be like, look, legal team, I've, <laughs> I've you know this is a thing you've seen before. Don't be scared. And they go, oh, I'm not scared. It's great. You can use this in your product. It's much easier than having to go through all of the negotiations and pains of, of, of doing this in the commercial world. Isn't there even some controversy over the kind of open source license? Is it GPL or some of the ones that have caused problems for certain kinds of developers? The nice thing about open source licensing, again, there's some standards there, and so you know what you're getting into. It's very easy to take these long contracts. I imagine, and you know, lawyers are there's a reason lawyers are paid for this, and I'm not a lawyer, but you know, they spend a bunch of time painstakingly reviewing things and understanding them. That's no different in the open source world. It's just you've now got let's say five or ten of them. And each one has their requirements, and you have to abide by those. So, mm. you know, in our case, because we're working with a lot of libraries, we're working with a lot of things that people are embedding within their own products. We're not using things like the GPL, but rather using things like BSD and MIT and things, what are called more permissive licenses that let you package that up and include it in your you know in your software. Mm. Usually, our customers aren't distributing things built on us. They're building things like. You know, web services or backend services within their own organization, but that still makes them. I think it makes them feel more comfortable to have this type of permissive licensing. There are companies, you know, both recently and in the past that have gotten into trouble by not understanding the terms of their of their license. Maybe they don't include a copyright notice they're supposed to include, or you know, in the in the case mm-hmm. of the recent Wix WordPress panes, they they didn't realize what some of the terms around the GPL were, or they didn't realize that some of the software right. had been relicensed around the GPL. I, I don't think this is a problem with a license. It's a problem with people entering agreements without reading them. I mean, it's mm. like if you were to go to the bank, sign a bunch <laughs> of paperwork, not realize you'd agreed to this crazy mortgage that doesn't meet your needs, but and then you show up next week and you go, but I had to pay you money. So like what actually happened in two thousand eight, like <laughs> well, <laughs> ARMs. <laughs> well, so sure, yeah. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't even thinking. To, I wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking about that recent history. But yeah, when you sign an agreement, you should actually read it. And I don't think you know licensing is any different. The nice thing again about open source licensing is your legal department can probably give you like a two sided one page that says mm. these are the licenses we've read that we agree on that we're not concerned over. Use those. If you want to use something else, we should read them and talk to each other about them yeah. and make sure they make sense. Uh, in my previous role at Uyala, like one of the things that I did was work with our legal team to build that open source policy. And I hope, you know, I know that's a, not particularly the topic of the show today, but mm-hmm. you know, that's a, a, if you're in an organization and you're consuming open source, and I'm pretty sure that's everybody that's listening because there's nobody that's not consuming some open source <laughs> somewhere, whether or not they realize it. You should have, you know, talk to your legal team, find out what that two pages of sort of approved procedures is. 
and they'll generally stay off your back as a result of it. And you'll be a, you'll be a happy developer. They'll be a happier legal team. And when your startup gets acquired or your software gets bought by somebody, there's not going to be questions as to like what what did you do and why did you do it. Yeah, I guess part of what I find so interesting about this. Topic generally is that I haven't actually worked for a company that, until Datadog at least, that even had open source components to it. And so I don't know very much about this. And that companies like Docker that you know, have started with a purely open source product and have built a massive community around that, and only after that have then tried to make money on it and to build an actual revenue stream from it, it almost seems like an accident. I don't know whether a founder at a company like that sets out with a very clear and pure intention of doing that or whether you know with Convox you set out with a very very clear and pure understanding of how you were going to approach what was open source and what wasn't and i don't know that part of it is is really interesting to me yeah i mean definitely i mean so the open source is a very broad expansive label right for I me mean, for all sorts of things and i think yeah i mean there's definitely like the giant community plays you know linux things like that where they just exploded with you know, participation of like thousands and thousands of people mm-hmm. I think you know with Convox we essentially open source like just basically helps us achieve our business objectives and we think it's sort of the right thing to do for some things. Like for one, we just like it gives us a certain amount of trust you know, that people can you know, kind of pick it apart and see how it works mm-hmm. and you know customize it to to their needs. But also I like just sort of like personally think it's like I've I've long tried to produce like open source as much of my code as I can uh, wherever I've worked. And I think it's just it's important to make sure that like we still remember how to build things like as a society. Yeah. Like when you have these mechanical things, you can take them apart and see how they work. But if you have just this black box of code somewhere, mm. like it, nobody can figure out what that does. And if the only code on the internet is example code that doesn't actually do anything, like nobody's going to learn yeah. how to do anything. And the example that you gave uh, Elon of Datadog, like anything that runs on your host mm. is going to be open source. That right. that almost seems like an expectation for developers. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's great for so it's great for security teams as we're putting. I mean, we put software on your machines, and mm-hmm. you know, you want to prove that maybe it only sends metrics and doesn't you know make changes <laughs> to your machine on you know that that we're not making changes to your machine, or you want to know what metrics we're sending and why we're sending them. You have all of the code right there for an audit. I think that's. It's starting to become the expectation. I mean, there's still plenty of proprietary software that you can buy and download or or get on DVDs somewhere and then consume within your organization. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I just think people are starting to expect to have visibility, especially when it comes to developer tools and libraries. If you if you're going to require some library like Ruby or Python library, you want to know like what's it going to be monkey patching in my code because that <laughs> changes the if that changes the way my what a method I was expecting to do does, mm-hmm. then I I want to know what what's happening there. Otherwise, as you're trying to debug, you know, some odd behavior, you don't is there some magic in this black box as we were talking about before? Is it you know, what's going on there? And this this way you have that visibility. I mean, for us, it's also just the idea that we couldn't instrument everything under the sun. It's just not possible. Like there are so many long tail services or projects or, or products out there, whether it's commercial or open source. You know, and we only have so many human hours within, you know, person hours within Datadog. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a database that you want to monitor, and you're the only person under the sun that has that has that database, maybe it's something you built in house, or maybe it's just not a very popular database. You want to get metrics at it because out of it, you want visibility. And so, having a plugin model let us. You know, uh, a plugin model that was easy to contribute to or easy easy to write for makes that possible. Otherwise, you're blocked on us. And you know, we want to meet all of the needs of all of our customers. But uh, you know, at some point, you know, grabbing something like MySQL or Postgres that's used at in probably every customer, every one of our customers likely uses one of those you know one of those databases or a similar popular one is going to happen much more quickly than say, 
you wrote a bespoke database at home and you would like mm-hmm. me to monitor it. I, it just yeah. it's it's and as both a tool and a company drawing those lines seems like an interesting and important exercise. Like one, maybe by identifying it, you're identifying where your company is going to provide the most value. Like here are the parts that we are core service for, and then here are the other parts that we're going to let people extend. And yeah. and understanding that distinction seems useful. Yeah, I mean, for us, the value I think that we provide is all of the smarts that are in our platform, whether it be things like anomaly detection or outlier detection or connections with all the third-party services that we integrate with at a you know service-to-service level, mm-hmm. the ease of use of our UI. That's where the value that we provide as an organization is, I believe. I mean, our, our, I don't want to discount the agent. I work very closely with our agent team, especially since it's one of our more popular open-source projects. But you know, I think the ability to be up and running in seconds with an agent that's collecting the majority of the metrics you care about is very important. It's an enablement story that you have to do if you're in our space. But there's lots of agents out there, right? Like I think ours is great, but there's other tools out there, whether it be Collecty or some other solution for collecting metrics and sending them to us. We have APIs for that as well. And so the idea, you know, if, if somebody were to write a better Datadog agent and send, you know, send the metrics our way, as as the Stripe folks did, I don't know that that changes the value that we offer them. We mm-hmm. still offer them this amazing platform around alerting them on only the things that matter and helping them identify problems in the metrics that they're sending us. Like you said, I think identifying where the core value that you offer your customers is, is is important from the start. I mean, that seems to be a testament to that. That like somebody would rewrite, you know, the agent entirely. Basically, I think speaks to the fact that the core value wasn't that for them because they rewrote it themselves. And yeah. and, and they they and a lot of our customers that do end up writing custom agents or collectors or whatever it might be do still. You know, they often still do use our agent. They just use it. It's mm-hmm. in a place that the, the what they wrote is to scratch a particular itch. And then there's other places where our agent or our projects meet their needs. You know, it's not just big things like the agent or the plugins. You know, because the APIs are available there, I've seen people write like Erlang SDKs for the Datadog APIs or you know other languages that we likely were not going to touch right away, but not because they're not important, just because the majority of our customers are are elsewhere. And as much as we love the Erlang community or we love the Haskell community, you know those are not the number one people sending us metrics at any given point in time. So you know we're going to start off with more common languages, maybe like the you know the Java world is huge, the PHP world is huge, the Python world is huge. These are places that you know we can get the most bang for our buck early on. So that's where we started. I'm sure there's an Erlang or a Haskell user that feels like I've slighted their community. I do not mean that in any way. It's just sort of a, the realities of number of users that need monitoring. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to know, like, how does open source sort of fit in at Datadog? Like, do you consider it? Is it sort of a like a support service for existing customers? Is it a way to reach new customers? Is it like, do you think about it as part of like the funnel of you know when people are going to pay you more money, they tend to write more open source code related to Datadog? Mm-hmm. Like, so in our development of open source software, we have teams. I mean, the teams that work on open source components, they work. I mean, they follow an open source first. Model right, so you know our agent team, for example, in the integrations that they write and plugins that they write, it's all happening in Git. So like, you can call us up and you can ask us what our roadmap is for Kubernetes, and we're happy to have those calls with our customers. But you're likely to get much better view into that looking at the branch about you know for Kubernetes features that we're working on in the agent because hmm. uh, that work is just happening right there. It's not like there's a closed source repository behind our firewall and then once in a while we sync it out. It, it all happens right there in the repo. And that's been great because also our customers sometimes they'll show up and they'll say, "Hey, I want this feature. I know there's a ticket for it. I don't see it, or I noticed that you're working on this. I found a bug in what in your code long before you've released it. Here, let me let me send a pull request. You know, so we've had this happen. The folks at Lithium, 
you know, saw we were working on an OpenStack integration. Mm. They didn't want to wait for it to be done. <laughs> they grabbed the code straight out of our code source control, tried it out, and they're like, hey, you don't have these features we want. We're like, yeah, the card was in like three sprints from now, but thank you for the pull request. You know, we can now work on the other features that you want. Hmm. Uh, we had some folks at you know another customer here in Palo Alto that saw our Kubernetes integration, wanted some things that you know again there were issues for in the queue. We were going to get to eventually, probably very soon. Not fast Should, enough. Apparently not fast <laughs> enough. Woke up to a pull request for it, but they can they have that visibility into our development process on our open source projects because it's it's there in the open. I'm also curious how often roadmap. Ends up getting pushed into the company that way. Like, if enough customers are demonstrating interest and contributing code, does that ever alter the roadmap for the rest of the company? It definitely shows interest from our customers. I mean, we're very, very customer oriented in, in how we determine what we're going to work on. If it's a request we're hearing often, that's what we're going to, you know, maybe it's squeaky wheel gets the grease, but, but really it's, I mean, it's customers are showing demand. We're a service, so we only continue to make money when our customers see that we're providing them with value. So if they are making a demand because it's something that they need, we're going to spend the time to help make that happen. I think containers are a great example of this. It's something that we saw. We saw the Docker folks working on this long before 1.0. We're like, yeah, that looks interesting. We should spend some time on it. The first Docker plugin that showed up for Datadog was a pull request from a community member. You know, at the time, did we plan to have an entire team focused on container-related technologies and, and metrics? Probably not. So yeah, it, it shifted that. Now I don't know if you can say that that's from the, the pull request shifted our roadmap, or did the industry, mm. like, or did the infrastructure space changing entirely based on what Docker and you know CoreOS and other containerized container folks you know doing? Did that change our direction, or was it the pull request? I, I don't know. I mean, mm. I think they probably go hand in hand. So right now, one of the things that we're working on is um, making it even easier for you to contribute plugins to Datadog. That has changed our roadmap for the team. Like we realized that. You know, having contributors wait weeks, months, whatever it might be, for feedback on a plugin they sent us is not a great, it's not a great experience. And so, one of the things we've been working on for a bit here is splitting up those release processes, making it easier for individual contributors to release their own plugins for Datadog. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that wasn't on the roadmap, but based on the number of pull requests we were seeing and sort of some of the frustrations in our community and from our team on how fast they wanted to have these things move, the roadmap changed. So, I, I think any roadmap changes with input from your customers. Otherwise, it's, it's probably not a good roadmap. That was something we talked about with Michael from the Node Foundation a few shows ago of how creating the open source process, creating the process for people to contribute, making sure that that's streamlined and that people feel that they're being listened to and that their code's mm-hmm. being accepted, that is a really important part of the open source experience also. Yeah, and in the same note, I mean, the Docker folks have, have talked about this a few times in their keynotes, right? I think Solomon mentioned this in his keynote at, uh, at OSCON. Yes is forever. No is maybe temporary. And so, <laughs> you know, you, as you're accepting pull requests from your community, it's also reasonable to say it, it's important to know what you're not willing to accept. And you know, there are projects where it's basically very permissive. You know, you can basically make a pull request, merge your own pull request, move on. And there are projects where that's not necessarily the case. And, and knowing where you fit on that spectrum is important. And mm. and and communicating that out to your community, I, I think we could probably do a better job of of that. And we're we're making efforts towards that. It seems like sort of a nice transition to talk about the downsides mm-hmm. of open source. I was listening to you talk about the Docker support that was contributed, yeah. and it sounded like that maybe even came before you had planned to do it. And so, you know, if you get a feature like that, it's great because it enables a whole bunch of new things. But now you're also like you're maintaining that code now that you've accepted it. Yeah, you know, in the case of Docker, that's turned out very well for us. I mean, mm-hmm. it's you know, you if folks have probably seen our uh, there's a Docker adoption study that's up on the Datadog website. The title is Eight Surprising Facts About Docker Adoption. Uh, we've been doing this about every six months or so. 
you can tell from the numbers there just based by the explosive growth of of container usage that like containers have done us well. So I'm very happy that we took that pull request. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it changed the direction of things. But if you want to come drop an amazing idea on my lap and say like, here's a great way for you to succeed in your business, like I'm not going to say no to that. I don't see that as a downside, right? It's it's another way to interface with your customers and, and learn from them. Otherwise, historically, the way you get you know you hear from your customers is like you have an account manager and the feedback comes up through them or through support, uh, or you have these quarterly business reviews where like the whole team gets in front of the sales guy and a product guy and they're like, this is what, they give you your pit, their spiel and then you come back and say, but that's not any of the things I wanted. I wanted these things and then you kind of negotiate back and forth. I think having this other angle to connect with our customers, which is you know through this community, offers us a little bit more. It's a little bit more of a relaxed conversation. It's a little bit more of an open conversation of like, what do you need and how how can we help you? How can you help us? Let's work together. Again, I don't see it as a as a negative. You know, there's other pain points in you know in the open source world, like, but I don't I don't think I don't I don't think ideas coming and taking your and, 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 and flipping flipping your business around is necessarily a problem. Yeah, definitely not. Um, yeah, I, I mean more just about like the long term maintenance, maintenance yeah. of, of new things that are submitted and, and having to say no often to, to yeah. some things because of that reason. It could be the greatest idea in the world, but you know, does yeah. it make sense for most of your customers? One thing I've loved about our community is, you know, we don't say no a lot, but when we say no to something, because we say, you know, this doesn't look great, uh, doesn't meet our coding standards, or you know, it seems like it's going to have an impact on the user systems or whatever it might be. Oftentimes, other members of the community will pipe up and be like, "Yeah, you know, you're you're probably right." They they will often reinforce some of the the feedback that we're offering in in the PRs, and we've started to see situations where. Over the years, customers have started to help each other out with their pull request. If somebody's written a plugin and we haven't had a chance to get to it and offer our feedback, and you know, there, there's oftentimes other customers or community members that are going to mm. pop in and say, "Oh, hey, the issue that you're, the tests are failing because of X, Y, and Z," or um, you know, "This is likely not going to pass muster," you know, later on in the review process because you know you're doing something inappropriate. But again, you're right. I mean, having more code to manage <laughs> and support, yeah, it adds some overhead. But I think. You know, if our goal is to monitor all of the things and make it easy for you to do it, then you know we're going to need more code for that to happen. Yeah, I remember Mitchell Hashimoto of HashiCorp talking about a similar idea that they've taken a more heavy-handed approach to contributions, and that they they're more careful about how they review them, and that they want people to contribute in a certain way. Mm. So they try to encourage it, but they also work with people pretty closely for important PRs because they want them to be done a certain way and. David, like what you were saying, that introduces entropy. Like you have to now manage all of this stuff and allow it in. But yeah, then you you get the right kinds of contributions, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I mean, and it, it's important to recognize people for the work that they're doing as well. So often, mm. well, maybe, maybe not often, but once in a while, we'll get a pull request, and we're like, you know, this is an amazing idea. I like generally what you've been doing here, but we're going to need to change this. Uh, and if you don't have the time, don't worry, we're happy to do it. But when that PR lands, the person still gets credit in the change log. They still get recognized in all the places that they would get recognized, even if that commit had landed unchanged, because the kernel of that, the idea that they brought forth, it was their work, it was mm-hmm. their inspiration that you know that brought this along. I don't think credit is everything, but it's important to recognize your contributors and it makes people feel good about the fact that they've participated. Yeah, I've noticed in the company release notes, there's always a shout outs to everyone that contributed that month. Yeah. It's it's important to recognize people for their work. I mean, again, they're yes, they're probably getting paid by their employer to do something here, uh, but often they're doing this in their spare time as well. And so it's it's important that your community feel like they're they're part of something bigger and that they're connected with each other, and it's, that it's not just like a one to one vendor you know consumer producer relationship. That too is a funny twist on all this for me. Is like here's a person at some other company, their salary is getting paid. Not by Datadog or by Convox, but 
they're spending potentially 100% of their time for some you know, period writing code for this product. Yeah, I mean, but is that different than say, let's say Twilio is or Amazon? They have APIs that customers mm-hmm. consume and they build things on top of. Is it strange to you that somebody would build an application around the Twilio API and then release the libraries for it, or the same with EC2? I... <laughs> that's a good point. I guess it's kind of a slippery slope. Like anyone that's ever posted anything to Stack Overflow, you know, you could argue like, well, why are they wasting their time contributing knowledge back to the community? <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, I think that the difference is again, it's it's about what is the value that you're offering your customers and, and where is it at. And if you've picked that demarcation right, they're not going to have a problem building around those APIs or building into the projects that are at the mm-hmm. at, sort of at the edge or the fringe of that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that brings up important like altruism and community. It's it's great that those are actually values that this community shares. I guess. I mean, I'm not. I don't try to kid myself here, right? I don't think people are showing up to the Datadog community because they want to make the world a better place, and that's why they <laughs> dropped a PR in there. They care about their own needs, uh, which is they wanted to monitor a thing. And we either didn't monitor it in the way they wanted, or we didn't monitor it at all. Sure, occasionally there's altruism in it, but it, you know I think this is there's, this is self-serving, and I guess this is also the difference between open source software and, and you know and free software to some extent as well. You know the, the the philosophies around it. You know we're doing a lot of folks think about open source software as being more of a it's more like the means to an end. This is a technically better approach, or this is you know I need it. It's again the visibility that we talked about earlier into the code. On the free software side, again, it's all about that altruism. I think it's. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to make the world a better place, and that means everything is open and free and, and accessible by everybody. And I'm, I'm sure I'll get corrected by somebody in the in the comments, but that's that's the way I, I read it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's an important distinction between Linux and Datadog. Yeah. Again, we are a hosted service, but I do think the open source component of it enables us to be successful on that side. We also use a lot of open source internally, right? I mean, whether it be mm-hmm. HA Proxy or Nginx or you know Cassandra or some you know Kafka, other things that we use internally. Redis. I mean, these are all open source pieces of open source software that we're we try to be members of those communities as well. So whether it be writing better documentation for them or you know contributing back when there's a feature that we need in those upstream projects. Like I said, I don't think there's any company out there these days that doesn't have some open source component in it somewhere. You hinted at something before the show about risks, and that in at least one case, I think someone has come along and taken open source pieces of Datadog and, and basically founded another company on the back of that. Maybe not founded, but you know, there's people that have taken, you know, forked our agent and used it in different ways. You know, and basically the agent takes a config option of like, what API do I push this to? You know, they've either changed the changed the type of API that it talks to, or they've changed the URL, uh, and they built their own service behind it. And I think that's again, I think that's okay. Our there are projects that we use that had started off as somebody else's projects, and we, you know, eventually we contributed and eventually had the need to fork it. You know, I think like every project maintainer, we'd love. For when you know, if they make fixes or improvements or what have you, we'd love for them to send PRs back. But again, we know what license we chose. It's not by any means required in many cases that when our open source projects are consumed, that they're re-released. The requirement is generally, you know, a copyright notice and some attribution. Again, you you read the contracts that you sign and then mm. you abide by them, and uh, that's both us understanding that we've you know we've put something out there that the world may consume, and it's the people that consuming it understand that they have to. You know, abide by that as well. Again, is there a cost to a fork? No, I mean it's code somewhere else that we're not interacting with. Our customers are usually not running those those forks, so it, 
I, I don't see any negative to it, to it. I mean, we'd love to collaborate and get get those features back. But I think it's actually kind of nice. It's almost like a good balance, right? Yeah. Like you know, you have Datadog, the service that you're selling, but like the agent is open source, and all the plugins that all these other people that aren't you have helped build are mm-hmm. all open source, and like. Maybe not every company in the world has to figure out how to monitor OpenStack, yeah. you know, individually <laughs> yeah. a thousand times. Yeah, like you said, it's you know you can take apart a piece of machinery and you're like, oh, this cog hooks up to this cog. That's how these two pieces work together. Mm-hmm. Doing that with compiled software, maybe not as easy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm curious, although I don't know if this is a great way of asking the question about the risk, the decision of deciding like, here's our core value. Here are the pieces that are on open source. Here's the service that we're going to provide. And then here are the pieces that we're going to open source and let people contribute to or customize. That if you sort of miscalculate there and you maybe underestimate your core value, that as people are building and and maybe unintentionally or whatever chipping away at that core value, can you lose your business that way? I mean, I think that's the risk of a lot of the open core mm-hmm. projects, right? So in the early two thousands, there you know there's this open core business model, which is you know a bunch of Bunch of startups figured, you know what? What I'll do is I'll make an open source project that doesn't have all the features, or maybe isn't easy to deploy, and then I'll sell an enterprise version of it <laughs> that solves all of the challenges the people in the open source community had, and has another layer on it. So maybe you call it a freemium model, maybe you call it, you know, open core, whatever name you want to give it. I think some companies have struck that balance very well in that they're like they add new features, and then at some point those features migrate into the open source project, and they go find another feature to add. That definitely keeps you on your toes. You have to keep finding value to give your customers. And you know, hopefully, you're you're also differentiating on support and some other services that you can offer, and helping that you know having your the relationship be a value to the customers that are licensing your proprietary software. But there's other companies that have gotten the balance horribly wrong, and so you'll get like a pull request for I don't know user management in your project, and you're like, no, that's an enterprise version. Mm-hmm. We won't want you integrating this with Active Directory. That's like that's for enterprise users. You shouldn't be using the open source model for that. <laughs> and I've seen this in a number of projects. I won't. I'm not going to name and shame, but that's not an ideal situation because now you're in a combative. Mm-hmm. Relationship with your community, you know they've gone through the effort of building a thing, and you're like, no, I'm not going to accept that, or you need to go do this off to the side. And I want to hide your work. I'm not always as excited about the open. I think when people go down the open core model, they maybe have not figured out like where the right balance is is for that. Mm-hmm. It's not my favorite approach for running an open source project. I think we're lucky in that we're a service, and I think the SaaS world has definitely changed the way we consume software in general, but open source specifically as well. Like. Both in terms of the licenses that now exist for working with that, but also in terms of just what users expect, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think definitely like software as a service, like sort of all of the as a service things have, have definitely changed open source. I mean, even like down to like their purest intent, right? right. Like the GPL doesn't work when the GPL is a distribution license. Right. So if I take a piece of GPL code and deploy it on my server and sell that, I don't have to release the code. Right. So yeah, it's in a way it has sort of like gone around the intent of open source in some ways, but it has also I think allowed some really interesting open source businesses to flourish where they can sort of like all right, we're going to like build some value around this as a service part and then you know give away whatever yeah. on top of that. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, and there's there's licenses that approach that Situation as well, right? There's the there's the AGPL, for example, which, mm-hmm. you know, uh, again, not a lawyer, do not take this as legal advice, <laughs> but you know, where you know accessing your software over the network makes it, you know, is considered a distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, again, this is about picking the right licenses and the right, and making the right decisions about where your order is going to be between your commercial offering and your non-commercial offering, and you know, there's always the option of you know sell you know services and support model, and you could sell you know you can run a business that way. There are many organizations that have been successful at that. I guess it's just a question of, 
your definition of success and how you want to get there. Do you think we're trending away from that, the service and support model? I, I think so. I, I think it's just like you can't really build a, a long-term sustainable business unless you're Red Hat <laughs> around I, that. Yeah, I think it depends on how you define long-term and sustainable, right? I, again, if you're generally if you're a venture-backed startup, folks are looking for a very they have a very specific definition of success, and maybe it's harder to attain that model on a service and support. Mm. I mean, again, much like not a lawyer, not an MBA. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to use the wrong words here. Somebody <laughs> will correct me later. But the size of the win your investor is going to get may is is a little bit different in a pure service and support model than it is over product licensing or what have you. And so, I'm not discouraging folks from running that way. It's just again, it's where do you see your company going? Where are you trying to get to from point A to point B? And then you pick the right path. I think there's lots of people that have built smaller, medium-sized, sustainable businesses on pure open source, you know, consultancies or what have you. There's of course Red Hat on the other side of that. <laughs> yeah. um, there's the MySQLs of the world. I mean, there's success stories in that space. It's just a question of can everybody do it and how big can they get? Yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like I mean, this is just anecdotal from my own personal experiences, but I feel like companies are moving, like the customers are leaving the model mm. even more than the companies you know, the- providing it. If this is a topic that you're interested in and you're listening, there's a couple of great pieces out there on the internet. One's uh, look up anything written by Stephen Wally or John Monarch Walker on opensource.com, among other places that they've written. But they've both written some fantastic posts on this about the delineation between your product and your open source communities and open source versus free software and mm. uh, where all of this falls. And I, they, they speak to it much more eloquently than <laughs> I can. And you should have one of them on the show someday. <laughs> How much can a random person learn about Datadog's roadmap by looking at the open source roadmap? Mm. And is that a risk to a business that's trying to publish and and you know have their open source community flourish, but at the same time build a business? I mean, look, PR people like a secret. I mean, they want to have a big pop. They want to go to like the tech crunches of the world or whatever you know whatever the publication is and. And say, here's this new thing we just released. And sometimes that's hard with open source projects because everybody knows what's being released. It's been talked about on the main list for six months, or it's showed up. You know, in, in our case, it's showed up as a, it's been in as a pull request there for a while. Hmm. Is that a problem? I, I don't. I don't think so. I don't know. Someone in PR might disagree with me. I think you can still announce a feature as being done once it's actually done, even if people knew it was coming for a while. Right? It's not <laughs> like, you know, you go to the the big Apple keynote. Once a year, it's not like you don't already know. There's probably a new laptop coming today. <laughs> you may not know the specifics of the laptop, but you know it's coming. It's just people like secrecy. I, I guess open source maybe flies in the face of that, but I think you can still do your, you can still be successful in your announcements and your PR. You just have to plan them differently and have more to say than, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. because you actually had a, you know, the the plan's been written there for a while. I've I've had this conversation with a lot of folks, a lot of different companies I've worked at. I've always been sort of like the proponent of open source of where I've worked, and uh, I feel like if you're in the position of like worrying about the media leaking your features as news, mm-hmm. like you've got different set of problems that are probably okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean you're, you're, it's not like the Mozilla folks don't end up in the news pretty regularly. Anyways, when they make an announcement, mm-hmm. right? When they add a new feature, whatever it might be. But yeah, you could probably go on Bugzilla again six months in advance and see something's coming. It actually means they probably get covered twice: once when the commit landed, and then once when it actually gets released. I think, like you were saying, getting getting in the news at all for most of us is a bigger problem mm-hmm. than controlling the coverage, <laughs> right? So I don't know that it's a problem. I think yeah. it's just something that you need to take into account and you know make sure that your PR teams and your you know whomever are ready and if you're lucky also like you said you know maybe you don't even have a PR team but just make sure that as an organization you know what's you know what's coming all right 
thanks again Dion for coming on the show with us and if people are looking for you online where can they find you uh, so I Rabinovich on Twitter is probably the easiest place or pretty much anywhere else but yeah Twitter is probably the best way to engage at the moment awesome. yeah, thanks for coming thanks for having me that's about all we have time for today if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you have a DX topic you'd like us to dive into you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at don't make me code to learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.